0: Let's pray together. Father, it's a wonderful thing to think about your love for us, Jesus, your love for us. How many people in each of our lives uh, love us? How few? And who would love all of us? Together, all this Different personalities and different ups and downs, different histories, different everything. And you've got enough love for all of it. And tonight we're humbled by your love, humbled to sing about it. Nobody needs to prod us to sing or to raise our hands. Your love has impacted us so greatly. Thank you for being a loving God. Thank you for making us the objects of your love and of your grace. and We pray in a spirit of worship as we turn to your word that you would speak to us from it in just the way that we need from your heart of love and that you would speak exhortation, edification, and comfort. And we pray, Lord, that you would make your word exactly what it is in the hands of your spirit, alive and powerful, living, living, in our lives and we pray for this work of your spirit tonight in jesus name amen please be seated good evening to you we're glad you're here well at least i am book of acts chapter 13 tonight sunday night through the bible genesis to revelation and we come here now this evening to the book of acts Chapter 13. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manaan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then, having fasted and prayed uh, lay, and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So it's an easy uh, few verses to read through, as we would read through in the Bible and uh, miss what a monumental. Um, event is occurring at this point in the book of Acts. Uh, up to this point, uh, the central focus and kind of headquarters of the early church uh, was the city uh, of Jerusalem. And now the focus of the early church and uh, the missionary uh, movement of taking the gospel into the whole world, uh, it, now the focus moves to the city of um, Antioch. And so this is a a big change, and going forward now, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul will take the focus, his uh, three missionary journeys, and uh, all of the trials and tribulations he went through as a a part of of those uh, missionary journeys. And so here we have uh, uh, the characteristics of that new missionary movement that is in the heart, that uh, was in the heart of this church is in, uh, in Antioch is intended to be in the heart of any church and intended to be in the heart of, of really any, uh, any Christian. So there they are in uh, the, the city of Antioch and the Holy Spirit separates Paul and uh, Barnabas and Saul for uh, the missionary uh, work. We remember from chapter 11 uh, that a church was established in Antioch when Jews were Uh, scattered from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, which are regions of Israel, scattered out into the Gentile world with that persecution. And when they were scattered, uh, principally Jews, into these Gentile areas, they brought the gospel with them. God's offer of salvation and the forgiveness of sins to mankind that is found in uh, in His Son, as we've been singing uh, tonight. And so many people became Christians uh, in the city of Antioch, largely a Gentile city, uh, The news of it got back to the apostles there in Jerusalem. Despite the uh, distance of 123 miles, they send, uh, or rather 300 miles, they sent Barnabas to uh, investigate the legitimacy of what was happening there because it, it was uh, It was groundbreaking in the early church. So Barnabas came, you remember, what he saw there in the church of Antioch, Jews and Gentiles both being saved by the same gospel and the same message. And he recognized it to be a work of the Lord. And uh, he encouraged the new Christians uh, in their uh, relationship with the Lord. And he recognized immediately uh, that given so many new Christians in one place all at once, that the great need that they had immediately following evangelism and uh, and uh, 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 conversion was a need for teaching uh, in the Word of God to ground them in the Word of God, and so he then makes the 123 mile journey to the city of Tarsus. He finds Saul there and calls on Saul to join him in helping establish uh, this church in Antioch, and so. He finds Paul there in uh, Tarsus, and uh, some uh, 10 or 13 years after his conversion, and uh, 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 Saul now leaves the relative uh, anonymity of that, uh, of that setting in Tarsus, and now comes front and center into church history, and front and center in, in the history, early chi- uh, history of the church as we find it uh, in uh, the book of. Uh, acts. And so one of the things that we see with the Apostle Paul and his calling, just as we see it um, with, with the Holy Spirit uh, in, in his, uh, it, with Jesus' choosing of the disciples to leave the fishing uh, for uh, regular fish, leave their nets and become fishers of men. Uh, he called them. He called men uh, that were working, they were busy, they were industrious, they were not lazy. When Barnabas comes uh, to Tarsus to find Saul, he doesn't see find Saul just waiting around idly with a remote in his hand, uh, whether a video game or a TV remote and just killing time until God wants to use him. He was busy about the Lord's work and, uh, and uh, and and that was his preparation. He was going to serve the Lord. His heart had been tested for ten years. He was going to serve the Lord, whether he was in the limelight or he wasn't in the limelight, uh, whether anybody knew him or didn't know him, uh, whether it was in an obscure city or a prominent city, no dream of ever becoming fully though god had told him how he would use him at the time of his conversion uh, that he would be uh, become the central character of the entire second half of of the book of of acts and uh, uh, one of the things that's important to understand and we learn about ministry here is that the ministry our christian service it's no place for an idler, or for a lazy uh, person. Um, It is ministry, uh, um, especially for pastors, um, and especially for missionaries, uh, can really be a place where uh, a certain group that uh, should never be in the position, uh, or in that place, uh, uh, an easy place to hide. And uh, But no idler or no lazy person has any business uh, being involved in either one of those uh, things. Uh, I think it, it — I remember uh, years and years ago, but it so etched itself in my memory, um, a, a relatively young man, he was in, uh, mid to late 20s at that time, and he came up to me in this very fellowship hall, uh, and he said to me, Uh, in all earnestness, he said, I've just got fired from my job this week, and it's the third job I've been fired from. I think it's God's way of telling me he's called me into the ministry. And I'm looking for the nearest exit out of that fellowship hall uh, that I uh, can find. And uh, anybody who cannot hold what we call a regular uh, job, uh, and uh, is, is going, not going to do well in the ministry, not in the eyes uh, of the Lord. And so, as Jesus said, he who has been faithful in what is least is also faithful in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is, also, uh, is, uh, is unjust also in much. What we are right now is what we really are, not what we think we would become if God would entrust some area of ministry uh, to us. And uh, so uh, these events that happened here in chapter 13, uh, they occurred probably within within about five or six uh, years of the uh, establishment uh, of this church in chapter 11. And so what we see uh, put before us in these first three verses is a very, very strong, mature church and very, very strong, mature leadership in position uh, in that church. We're given a glimpse at, at the leadership, very, very gifted uh, in the uh, church. Its leadership included those who had been gifted uh, by the Holy Spirit to teach, uh, those who had been given the gift of uh, prophecy and the calling uh, of being a, a prophet. So some were, were prophets, that is that... Um, uh, God would deliver to them a revelation or a message from him, uh, and then they had the ability to recognize it as from God and then deliver it to uh, people. Teachers, simplest explanation I've ever heard related to teachers is someone who is deeply charismatic and... Uh, I'm just kidding. you uh, saying, what am I doing here? So, but it's someone who can just simply take the Word of God, read it, explain it, and then apply it uh, to people's lives. And, the, and, and they had both of these offices uh, well represented within the church. The names are given to us. Barnabas, as we've seen earlier, the son of uh, encouragement. And uh, he was a Jew from Cyprus. Simeon, who was called Niger. And so he possessed a Jewish name, Simeon. Later, he becomes known as Niger, and uh, Niger means black, and it isn't unlikely that he was an African Jew uh, who changed his name in order to uh, work more effectively among the Gentiles there uh, in Antioch. Lucius of Cyrene. And uh, so he's living at this point in time in Antioch. He's uh, originally from Cyrene, a city that uh, is in the area of the world that we know today as Libya in North Africa. Uh, Manaean, who had been, uh, we're told, interestingly enough, brought up with Herod Antipas. Uh, This is the Roman governor who ordered uh, the death of John the Baptist. And Manaean is probably... A uh, foster brother uh, of uh, of that Herod, so you have uh, this manaan raised in all of this privilege, raised in all of this influence, he goes on to become a Christian, and uh, Herod uh, grows up to be a monster it 's interesting what can come out of the same childhood and background. Uh, Saul is mentioned, we'll know him as Paul a little bit later in the a chapter, this former Pharisee from uh, from Tarsus. So a very, very diverse group of uh, men. It, it constituted the leadership of that uh, that uh, church within the city of Antioch. And so God uh, unifies really a wide spectrum of people uh, in His work. And a wide spectrum of, of Christians into any local church. I mean, if we knew the kind of diversity that is represented in this room, we would recognize that only the Holy Spirit and the common denominator—a love for God and a love, uh, a desire to worship Him and a love for His Word—that could bring uh, all of us uh, together. We're told that not only were they gifted as leaders and uh, as and as a church, but that gifting was coupled with a, uh, a deep spirituality. So it's one thing to be gifted. Uh, that's, one, that, that's something that's not uh, under our control. That's under the control of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Lord gives His gifts severally, individually, as He wills. We can't take any credit for a gift that He gives to us, but how we handle that gift, now that becomes a reflection uh, upon us. So they're not only gifted, but they're serious about the gifts that God has given to them, serious about the call that God has placed upon their lives. And, uh, and, uh, and, and they uh, coupled it with deep spirituality. And I think about this, I think about when I was playing basketball in high school, some of the most gifted and talented, not all of them, uh, a lot of the players, uh, they combined their gifting and their talent uh, with a, a real sobriety about becoming the best players uh, that, that they could. But there were players that were far more talented and gifted than the rest of us, but they never ever brought to that talent and that ability uh, a a, a desire to become great or desire to become as good as they, uh, they could. And uh, of course, uh, for the most part, they sat uh, on the bench as a result of it. So we're told in verse 3 that they were men of prayer. And so prayer is an expression of our de- uh, 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 dependence upon God. They're shepherds of this flock, but they recognize there's one shepherd over a flock and they are under shepherds under that that great shepherd and that their great responsibility is to find out what god is saying and what god wants to do and then to make that happen and uh, nobody's going to be able to have that happen in a church or in our lives uh, apart from uh, 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 from prayer that they're, they're that just that deep recognition that apart from you god I can do nothing, and uh, if we don't believe it initially in our ministries, uh, he'll let us try, and we'll believe it very, very quickly and realize that every one of us are to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's the only explanation. We're liabilities, all of us, uh, apart from, uh, from God's grace. They ministered to the Lord, and the idea is that they worshiped him Worship means, as we've just done, to ascribe worth to God, speaks of the currentness of their relationship with God, their love for God, that they weren't merely in the ministry, but the ministry was an outreach of their love and their relationship with the Lord. Very easy in Christian service to get those two things flipped, and they didn't get uh, that flipped. I would, uh, and I don't peek while we're worshiping, I'm in the, all the way in the back there with Pastor Bob. I'll peek at him once in a while. I'm just kidding, I don't. But I don't think it would be a good sign in, in someone who would be considered for missionary work or for someone that is going to be considered for leadership within a church who does not open their mouth and worship the Lord in song. Um, for God to pour so many blessings into our lives for our lives as christians to be those in which we're growing more and more even as happened to us as we worship the lord uh, this evening just growing in our understanding of the awesome thing that he has done for us in his son and that kind of thing has to find if it's if it's living in our lives it has to find an outlet And worship is that outlet, Uh, and if there isn't that present, uh, then uh, I would uh, would go slow on putting anyone into a a position of missionary or a leader in a church. We notice in in verse 2 that they fasted, and so fasting is just suspending uh, normal uh, eating uh, in life in order to the, take the time that would be used especially in the ancient world in buying food, preparing food, eating food would take up most of the day uh, uh, at least for some members of, of the family and certainly for a single person and, and, uh, and so that time now instead of spending doing those things we will seek the Lord's will in prayer. And all it does, it, nobody is to fast and they didn't fast in order to Prove something to God, or to earn something from God. I'm going to fast, and so now because I'm fasting, you have to give me what I'm praying for. That's not what fasting uh, is about at all. Uh, It it it, it is uh, just taking that time, setting it aside, and and saying, uh, Lord. All I want to do, I don't want to be distracted by anything else. Your will means more to me than even eating as it relates to these decisions that we're making. And, and I want to demonstrate that, uh, my heart in that. And uh, and so uh, great uh, great maturity here. I think that it, uh, they might very well have had in mind in all of this Isaiah chapter fifty eight uh, verse verse six, where God prophesied through Isaiah the fast that God calls us to. He doesn't call us to fast to corner him and force him to do what we want or to earn from him. That would be a terrible thing for him to reinforce in our lives. Uh, But uh, that fast is given uh, now in in specifically the fast that God calls us to is with a focus toward the lost, the focus toward the broken, the focus toward the needy in life. And Lord, what do you want us to do about that harvest field all around us? Isaiah fifty. 8 verse 6, is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break uh, every yoke. Very significantly we're told uh, that they were spirit-led. You notice in verse 2 that the Holy Spirit communicated to them, uh, separate to me uh, Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them, Uh, 2. And notice that uh, here you have the Holy Spirit referring to Christian ministry as work. It's not a place for the the idler, as I've said. So how the Lord might have spoken to them, there's no revelation here, probably not out loud in a voice. I mean, he could have done it. Uh, but probably through, given the fact that prophets are mentioned, probably through the, a prophecy through the off, uh, uh, someone that holds the office of a prophet uh, there uh, in the church. As, he, uh, as that prophecy comes forth and the direction that comes from uh, that prophecy, uh, then everybody else listens to it. And there is the discerning of spirits, whether, yes, this sounds like the Lord. Yes, this is the answer to uh, our prayer. You run it through the wisdom sifter that James gives us for testing anything as whether it's come from God or not. A wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without uh, hypocrisy. And so when the church and when the leadership looks at the, 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 the message that's been given perhaps by the prophet, and there's the recognition, this is our answer to prayer. And then they, they move forward. But depending upon the Holy Spirit uh, for that. And after which we notice there uh, in verse 3 that they then uh, laid hands uh, on uh, Saul and Barnabas, and so what they did is, uh, in laying their hands upon them, they weren't imparting something from themselves to uh, Saul and Barnabas. It was a, a communication of, uh, "We stand with you. We recognize God's calling upon your life. We recognize that you're called to do this, and and so uh, we identify with your uh, gifting." and with your calling in general i don't think it's a good idea Uh, sometimes it it, it can happen god can do whatever he wants but generally it is very important for a missionary uh, to go out and to be sent uh, by a church and to be sent by a very very solid uh, uh, church where somebody recognizes this person from fruit, from being around them, from watching their maturity. This person uh, has this gifting, has this calling. We stand behind them as they go, uh, they go forward. And when uh, somebody cannot find someone or a church that will send them in that way, then something is wrong. There have been a couple of times where um, we've had to say uh, no to somebody that uh, wanted to uh, go out into the mission field and clearly unprepared. I mean, no, absolutely no hope of surviving out there. And I remember one couple; they came and and uh, and, and th- I mean, just uh, talk about an idler and and. Uh, and so we uh, talked with them, and, and I told them why we couldn't send them out, and all. And they proceeded to try and create all kinds of problems uh, in the church related to that. But the problem that they faced is everybody that they complained to recognized it already about their lives. And so all it did is make them respect the decision that was made by the church even more. And so, but um, it, 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 people should be sent out from somewhere where the, that calling and that, uh, and that, that gifting is uh, recognized. And so they sent them out and what uh, to begin uh, the first of what would become Paul's uh, three missionary uh, journeys. And so Paul and Barnabas now become uh, the primary focus of the book of Acts. But it's important to, and, and Paul especially, but it's important to recognize the place uh, that Niger and all of the rest of them played in the launching of them into this. Uh, Paul, uh, Saul and, um, and Barnabas could never have gone out in the way that they did without other men and women taking the role that they were supposed to take in the church. And so we begin this uh, e- exciting uh, new chapter in the early church. It certainly, I think, it uh, uh, causes us to just stop for a moment and to ask ourselves, in the light of this kind of maturity, ask ourselves, um, uh, how much of my life is directed by the Holy Spirit? Um, uh, the friends that I have, uh, the ministry that I'm involved in, the major that I have in college, uh, where I live, all of these different kinds of things. And and, uh, and it's just not to get so wiped out in our minds where it's like, okay, what's your will here, God? What's your will there, God? What? And then we wonder, okay, which of the Six doors do I exit this room with at the end of the service. Which one is your perfect will, God, for, you know, not getting bound up like that. But where we can look at our lives and have actually taken, uh, it doesn't take more than a half hour to do it. And to just go right through it and say, Lord, am I in your will here? Am I in your will here? Am I in your will here? And and we'll know that we are when we have a peace from the Holy Spirit. No, that's right. That's a, a good thing. But we all want to operate, not just the early church, but we all want to operate from the confidence that God wants us to have of knowing that our lives are being directed uh, by the Holy Spirit. It's not just for apostles, and it's not just for uh, uh, church, uh, church leaders. And so there's a reason that all of this gets mentioned uh, in the Bible. In terms of uh, missionaries and applications for missionaries and application for uh, a church concerning uh, m- missions. We notice that it was a, a a gifted and spiritually mature church, uh, a word-centered church uh, that sent them out. And the reason that that's important is that's the typically the only kind of church that is going to produce the spiritual maturity that's needed in a missionary in order to survive what they're about to head into spiritually, And as we're going to see in Paul in in action uh, in in just a a moment. They were very sober-minded about sending anybody out. They wouldn't send anybody out there uh, without... Uh, the calling of the Holy Spirit on their lives and confirmation of that calling. Um, In sending Paul and Barnabas out, uh, we want to notice that the church in Antioch sent out two of their very best men or two of their very best people. God asked for their best, among their best, and they gave, uh, willingly uh, gave them uh, to God. I think it is the continual cry of mission organizations and missionaries to churches, and that is, send us your best. And it's as old a cry as Acts chapter uh, 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 13. I remember a a pastor of a very missions-minded church uh, declare, and I respect uh, him so much, he's in heaven now, he made the statement, I will not send anyone into the mission field that I would not put on staff in this church. It's a very high standard, and, uh, but it's a necessary uh, standard. I, I've heard other missionaries plead with pastors, uh, don't send your problem people out into the field. The ones that you want to get rid of because you can't get along with them, uh, because of their own carnality or their own uh, immaturity as uh, as Christians and so you you get rid of your problem but now you've made them our problem and it's very easy to have someone where there is a uh, you can see a gifting and a calling on a person's life but they're not spiritually mature enough yet to go out into uh, the mission field but they create such a problem in the church uh, that you just think well let's just send them and get them out of here and not realizing that we're supposed to have as much concern for uh, the Christians that we're sending them to uh, than uh, ourselves and uh, a lot of times problem people get sent into the mission field uh, in order to uh, get rid of them, to get them uh, out of a church. And there can be a great temptation to do that. I shouldn't say a lot of the time. Uh, it, it can happen. Uh, I, I like this quote by Ann Judson. In encouraging young men and women to come out as missionaries to use uh, the, in the greatest caution, one strong-headed, conscientiously obstinate man would ruin us. Humble, quiet, persevering men. Men of decent accomplishments and some natural aptitude to acquire a language. Men of amiable, yielding temper, willing to take the lowest place to be the least of all, And the servant of all, men who enjoy closet religion and live near to God and are willing to suffer uh, all things for Christ's sake without uh, being proud uh, of it. And so there's a lot to sift through with that, and uh, Barnabas and Saul uh, met that criteria. And so the first missionary uh, journey begins there in verse 4, and so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to uh, Cilicia. From there, they sailed then to Cyprus, which was uh, the home country of Barnabas. So, natural, uh, Cilicia, uh, Cilicia was a. Uh, 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 Antioch was inland. So they make their way to Seleucia, the harbor, then they, they make their way then to Cyprus, Barnabas's kind of home country or island, so a natural place to stop. And when they had arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, uh, and they also had John, that is Mark John, uh, as their assistant on this first uh, missionary uh, journey. And so they... Uh, make their way uh, all the way through in the, these places, and, and then in Cyprus, able to uh, now, in the length of the island, find synagogues, large Jewish population there, and uh, preach the word of God there. Now when they had gone through the island, they came to Paphos, and in coming to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, uh, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus, uh, when it talks about him uh, being the proconsul, he was the Roman uh, official that was kind of the governor of, uh, of, of the island, had uh, the endorsement of Rome on that. We're told further that he was an intelligent man, and he hears about this message that's being preached on his island, uh, obviously to to some good effect, and and, uh, and 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 so he called for Barnabas and Saul and sought himself individually to hear uh, the word of God. And so uh, he's told here he's an intelligent man. This is more than just being educated. It, it the Greek word speaks of to hold something. Together. So he possessed the capacity to carefully examine something and examine it and examine it and examine it until it either all fell apart or it all came together. And so he brings that mindset now to the gospel uh, that's being delivered uh, to him. Now clearly, he is still seeking the meaning and the purpose of life ultimately. And and so still uh, listening to what is out there that might solve that uh, for him. And uh, as the old observation goes, uh, there isn't a, a person in, in the world that is harder for the devil to hold on to uh, than uh, somebody who thinks, who possesses a mind that is uh, inquiring and is honest. And so... Paul teaches the word, and as he does so, uh, Eliamus then begins, uh, 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 Eliamus the sorcerer for for Uh, so his name was translated, he withstands Paul and Barnabas seeking to turn the proconsul from the faith. So he clearly is a counselor of the leader, uh, probably politically and that kind of thing, but also a spiritual influencer in his life. He recognizes immediately the implications of the message of the gospel. Uh, that That if his boss... Uh, becomes a Christian and accepts what Paul and Barnabas are saying. He's out of a job. He'll be gone. Uh, it'll be the choice between light and darkness. He's, going to, he's being exposed. So, of course, he's going to oppose uh, what it is that uh, is, is going on here. And uh, so he did, be trying to become an obstacle to the governor uh, coming to faith in Christ. And then uh, Saul who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked uh, intently at him. Now, uh, before we get to verse 10 and you uh, memorize uh, uh, verses 10 and 11 uh, for the next time you're doing some street witnessing, uh, notice that uh, Paul declared this filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the, The Bible teaches that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God doesn't need that help. It just creates trouble. So this is not carnal wrath. This is a righteous anger that Paul speaks with and it's provoked in him by the Holy Spirit. And so he looked intently at him and he said, "Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, Uh, you're full of lies, you son of the devil, you enemy of all uh, righteousness, Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord, opposing the clear straightness In light of what Paul was saying uh, to the governor. And now indeed the hand of the Lord uh, is upon you. And you shall be blind. Not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went uh, around seeking someone to lead him uh, by uh, the hand. And so here is a poetic justice. He's completely entrenched in spiritual darkness. God says, let's let him walk in physical darkness for a while as a representation of that. And never think that Paul did this vindictively. I don't think that when this guy was smitten with darkness and blindness for uh, a short season, uh, Paul didn't feel bad for him. He probably knew that this was just what the doctor ordered because that's precisely what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And he is smitten, and he is blinded, and he knows it did me no harm to stop and think about my direction in life and taking on God uh, publicly in a fight with him. Paul understands Elias' shoes and position, though he did it from a religious angle and not from a demonic uh, 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 angle. And unfortunately, though... uh, uh, bar Jesus he shows no sign of of brokenness or repentance here his all he wants and of course you can understand that is to find someone to take by the arm and get him out of there and uh, So Paul delivers this uh, this strong uh, uh, Rebuke and uh, the fruit of it was wonderful then the proconsul he believed uh, when he saw what had been done and being astonished at the teaching of the Lord, so he hears the teaching of Paul and Barnabas, the Gospel, the Word of God to him, and then uh, and, and then uh, here you have this um, ancient power encounter that occurs in in this scene, two kingdoms clashing with one another, and clearly whoever is the God of Saul and Barnabas is the master of that. That spiritual realm. And so he's putting it all together and he realizes this is the truth and this is what uh, and he gives his life uh, to Christ. One of the things that when a person goes out on a missionary trip, and, and whether that's a short-term missionary trip or whether that is a uh, going out to be a long-term missionary, uh, a, a lifetime missionary, to go out with Samaritan's Purse, to go out as a chaplain, uh, as a missionary into our uh, community, is to realize that uh, you are going to step, we are going to step right into the middle of a great battle between two kingdoms uh, the kingdom of God uh, and uh, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God only advances at the expense of the kingdom of darkness always and the kingdom of darkness and the devil himself they're not going to allow that to happen without putting up a significant fight Related to that so to enter into any kind of mission work or heading out uh, like that What is required is the realization? I am going to probably head out into a Spiritual warfare. I have never experienced before in my life and to be prepared for it And, and This is why the mission field or mission work It is that the carnal, uh, immature Christian has no business heading out into that. Uh, They will end up slaughtered. They will end up on a short-term missions trip and they will end up doing something that they can't even believe that they were capable of, of doing. And they just in their mind thought it was going to be one thing this thing and then all of a sudden it uh, they get hit with this warfare and all of these things that are underground so often in a person's heart where they haven't dealt with those things before god now they are facing a temptation that they haven't prepared themselves for and they'll become a casualty on the mission field that's why with Paul, as he oversees our short-term missions here, it's so important to speak uh, to people, even going out on a short-term mission trip, that you need to be ready for that. And if you're not ready for that, then you're not ready to head out because you will get clobbered uh, heading into the middle of that uh, unprepared. And so this great power encounter occurs. Paul is ready for it. Barnabas is ready for it. And boy, did they need to be. Now, when Paul and his party uh, set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And uh, when they came to Perga in Pamphylia, then John, John Mark, uh, their assistant, who was kind of a gopher for them on the trip, uh, he departed from them and he returned to Jerusalem. So nobody knows why he returned. We'll get... we'll. We'll delve into this a little bit more in chapter 15. But his departure, he is, is Barnabas' nephew. So whether he was allowed to come on the trip because of a family connection and he wasn't ready for what it was that was going to be required spiritually for this en- environment, uh, we we don't know. We do know that uh, when the next missionary journey occurs, Barnabas wants to bring his nephew along and Paul will have nothing uh, to do with it at all. And there's a happy ending to all of it, but we'll, uh, we'll leave it there for tonight. But here we see clearly uh, he was not ready for prime time. He was not ready for what he uh, got himself into the middle uh, uh, of spiritually and, uh, and he headed uh, back uh, back home and, uh, and, and, and returned uh, there. And then when they had departed from Perga, they came to Antioch. This is a different Antioch in Pisidia. Maps in the back of your Bible are helpful in this regard. And they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sat down. So there's a Jewish synagogue that's there. Paul's methodology in his three missionary journeys was if there was a Jewish presence in the city, then that he would um, go to that synagogue and begin by preaching the gospel uh, to the Jews because the Jews uh, already understood the language. They understood the fact that, uh, that, uh, that The Jews were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Savior uh, that would come from their lineage They understood the scriptures uh, the the scriptures had spiritual authority for them None of that was true of a Gentile from a pagan background So Paul, when he went into these these synagogues, he would preach Jesus as the Christ from the Scriptures, because these were recognized as authoritative by the Jews. When he went to a purely Gentile environment, pagan uh, environment, knowing nothing about the God of the Bible or the Bible at all, uh, he would begin to speak to them about God uh, from the context of nature. A context of creation and design and then move the conversation to uh, to uh, Jesus and so he follows that that model right from the beginning as we see it here in his first missionary journey and uh, so he sits there and Barnabas there in that uh, in that uh, uh, city and uh, and uh, they, they sat down in their, uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, which is an early part of a synagogue service even to this day, uh, the rulers of the synagogue uh, sent to uh, uh, Paul and uh, Saul and Barnabas, saying, "Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, then say on." So you've got the, maybe the service is um, a little bit ahead of, before the synagogue service. Here are two men that they don't know. They are both Jews: uh, Barnabas and Paul. Uh, 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 Paul comes from uh, Jerusalem. Uh, he's a student, a disciple of Gamaliel in uh, Jerusalem, so they have kind of honored guests here in their midst, and so they then turn over the teaching part of the synagogue service to Paul for him to teach uh, what it is that um, uh, uh, would be on his heart uh, to, uh, to speak. And uh, and that invitation uh, there in in doing that. Now, um, Paul stands up and uh, and motioning with his hand to get the attention of everyone, uh, he said, "...men of Israel and you who fear God." And so he's talking to Jews that are there, and then also uh, Gentiles who have converted to following Uh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews, uh, God fears they were known. He said, listen, he said, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people uh, when uh, they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And uh, so following, he talks about the Exodus out of Egypt. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. So that wilderness wandering for 40 years. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land uh, to them Uh, By allotment and so he's covering a lot of ground in just a few verses he's going all the way from Genesis now uh, and finishing uh, Joshua uh, in in laying out uh, the history such a gift and After that he gave them judges uh, and for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet And afterward, they asked him for a king. And so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, as as king for 40 years, being the first king of Israel. And when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found a David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do uh, my uh, will. And so he takes the uh, history and, and in just a few short verses he goes all the way from Genesis all the way well into the historical books of, uh, of uh, the, the Old Testament and uh, in, in uh, uh, speaking about what God did for the Jewish people. And then in verse 23, he does this beautiful shift. He's, he's spoken about David, the greatest king uh, that um, Israel ever had, humanly speaking. And, uh, and now he segues from that and uh, to the greatest expression of God's grace to all of them, Jew and Gentile alike, and that is the coming of their Messiah from the bloodline of David, as the scriptures had uh, declared would be. Uh, would be the case. And so he begins there at uh, at verse uh, 23 to speak of uh, Jesus. For this man's seed, speaking of David's seed, uh, from his lineage, uh, according to the promise, God's promise to David in the Old Testament that Messiah would come into the world through his bloodline, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus So Jesus is not only the uh, Messiah, the anointed one of the Jews, but he was sent into the world to be the Savior of the Jews, just like the Savior of every other uh, person in the world, namely uh, Gentiles. And so... Uh, here Paul declares that the Messiah is going to come into the world. He doesn't lay out the, the biblical foundation for all of this. He thinks they, he, he presumes that they understand the scriptures enough to follow him in his sermon. And, uh, and he talks about the fact that we all know that Messiah, God promised that he would be born through the bloodline or the lineage of David. And so Jesus was. And he introduces them to Israel's Savior, Jesus. And after John had first preached before the coming, Jesus' is coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, uh, who do you think I am? And uh, they were thinking he was the Messiah. And John, you might remember, said, No, I am not uh, the Messiah, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet uh, I am not uh, even worthy uh, to loose. And then men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham... Those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. I am uh, unveiling to you right now the Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile, and uh, based upon the prophetic uh, scriptures. And, uh, and uh, uh, this God has sent this word for me to deliver uh, to you. That is the gospel, God's invitation to salvation for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, uh, speaking of the Jewish religious leaders and the Jews as a whole at the time of Jesus' ministry, because they did not know Him, and then here is significant, uh, their ignorance concerning Jesus and recognizing Jesus as the Messiah had its roots in not even knowing the voices of the prophets. Jesus was an exact match prophetically of the Messiah that God promised to send into the world, and yet they didn't uh, even know the Scriptures well enough to recognize these things to be true of Jesus. And despite the fact uh, that these prophets are read in synagogues every Sabbath, and uh, they have then, now fulfilled those very prophecies of the, upco- the coming of Messiah uh, in their condemning of him. And, uh, and so, describing the life here of Jesus. And though they found no cause for death in him, uh, they asked Pilate to, uh, that he should be put to death. And so he was. And so, you've got the gospel, uh, the death, the burial... And the resurrection of Jesus. And he is going to talk about all of those. Verse 26 the death of Jesus as the Messiah, just as the scriptures declared, uh, that he would come and be put to death as this full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, now you think about that. When they had fulfilled, all that was written concerning him. I mean, this is a Jewish audience that he's talking to here, and he's talking to them about their Jewish uh, uh, patriarchs and their Jewish uh, teachers and leaders in, in Jerusalem. It, 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 that here, uh, in rejecting Jesus, in crucif- playing their part in crucifying uh, him, uh, that uh, they, ha- uh, they fulfilled these very scriptures in condemning him. in in the rejection of Jesus by the the Jewish religious leaders far from that being an evidence or proof that he isn't the Messiah or wasn't the Messiah it was a further proof that he was because Isaiah chapter 53 uh, Psalm 22 other places in the Old Testament speaking about how he would be treated not only by the world but by his own uh, people and so they took him Uh, down from the tree, the cross, and they laid him in a tomb. So death, now we have burial, and then the resurrection, verse 30, but God raised him uh, from uh, the dead. And uh, he was seen then for for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee uh, to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses uh, to the people. And we declare to you, glad tidings. This is a great message uh, that that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled uh, this for us. uh, uh, God has fulfilled this for us, their children uh, of the prophets, in that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. So He's now going to, he, he has declared Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as a qualification for, uh, uh, for uh, being recognized biblically as the, as the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And then now he's going to quote uh, the, uh, the verses, the biblical foundation uh, for it. And so he's already said in his sermon, Messiah will be uh, a descendant of the bloodline of David. Now he declares concerning uh, Jesus as it was also written of him in the second psalm, uh, God declaring of, of Messiah, You are my son, today you have begotten me. And so he would, no, Jesus, the Messiah, would not only be born fully man, from a human bloodline, but that he would be fully divine. He would be the very son uh, of God and the great mystery of godliness. And uh, God had prophesied this. The things that Jesus had said that provoked unbelief in the Jewish religious leaders were all reasons for faith in Jesus. If they had merely known the Scriptures and searched the Scriptures. And that he, uh, he that is the Father, raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption He has spoken thus. So he lays the the biblical foundation for the resurrection uh, of Jesus as proof of him being the Messiah. Uh, I will give you the more sure words, uh, the more sure mercies of David. And therefore, as he says in another psalm, Psalm uh, 16, verse 10, uh, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And here's the prophecy uh, of Uh, of the psalmist, declaring that the Messiah will die when He comes, but He won't remain in that dead condition long enough for His body to corrupt. In other words, resurrection. And so, apparently, they knew something a little bit about this, maybe very, very little, Uh, But here laying the biblical foundation for Jesus' qualification as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, based upon his death, his burial, and his resurrection. For David, uh, after he had served his own generation, by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. Uh, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. All these verses that you're saying speak only of David and not of Messiah. This belief that you have that when the Messiah comes, he will simply be a great man, but not uh, divine. Uh, 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 David is uh, dead and his bones are still uh, in the earth uh, somewhere. He saw corruption, uh, but... Uh, Jesus did not see, uh, see corruption. He couldn't and be the Messiah. David or no one solely or purely human could ever be, uh, uh, be Messiah. And therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And so this is what he offers now. I am, through faith in this man, what God is offering you is the forgiveness of sins. We've sung about that a lot tonight, actually. What a blessing it is to be forgiven of our sins. And if, we kind of, if I take that casually or lightly, all I've got to do is spend, really for me, about seven seconds to think about my past sins. And that's long enough to make me thankful for the forgiveness of sins that Christ has brought into my life. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justification is different than forgiveness. Forgiveness is the uh, forgiveness of sins. Justification is now because of my faith in Christ, when he looks at me, he sees me, just as if I had never sinned. Positionally. That's our position as Christians before God. And he said, neither the the law of Moses provided neither justification nor the the forgiveness of sins in any kind of complete or ultimate uh, way. Because they're based on on, uh, works and not on faith in the Messiah. And then he uh, in verse forty, here he pushes for a uh, a decision uh, in the, the preaching here of the gospel. Beware, therefore, uh, lest what has been spoken in the prophets uh, come upon you. Behold, you despisers, uh, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, uh, though uh, one were to declare it to you." Don't allow yourself to be put into the camp of someone who rejects this message um, and uh, needlessly, and, and these are the consequences. And so when the, uh, the Jews went out of the synagogue, here we have then uh, the responses to uh, Paul's sermon there. The Jews then exited out of the synagogue, and then the Gentiles who were present there uh, the god fears those who were checking out Judaism and, uh, and, and attending the synagogue as well, they begged Paul that these same words might be preached to them uh, the next Sabbath. So there's one more thing in the book of Acts that um, I have yet to experience in my life, and that is anyone begging me to re-preach a sermon uh, the next uh, Sunday. But it happened with Paul here and now when the congregation had broken up Uh, Many of the Jews and the devout proselytes, uh, they followed Paul and Barnabas. Uh, They put their faith in Christ, who speaking to them persuaded them. Now continue in the grace of God, not in the idea of salvation on the basis of human works. It's a gift from God. Stay in what it is that's happened to you uh, today. And then at the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes and the hunger of the Gentiles for this message, that God loved the Gentiles as much as the Jews. He wants to save the Gentiles as much as the Jews. The Jews were keeping that, that very much a secret from the Gentiles. Uh, Judaism as it was at that time. And so this wasn't something they, uh, that they were uh, steeped in and and uh, so they came out in multitudes the jews then the religious jews uh, who had rejected uh, paul's message they were filled with envy and they began then to contradicting to interrupt his sermon uh, to blaspheme him oppose the things that paul uh, was was speaking and then paul and barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of god should be spoken to you first But since you reject it, and then notice this, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, just as God declared in the Old Testament. This isn't something new. Uh, For so the Lord had commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God. And as many has been appointed uh, to eternal life, uh, believed. Now here it's very interesting that when you see The two aspects that people think so often are contrary to one another, but they're actually complementary and that is uh, human responsibility in salvation and and God's election in salvation or predestination. Both of them are true uh, about salvation and we see them both here right in the same passage. And, and you notice there in verse uh, 46 that in rejecting the gospel, they judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life. The human responsibility for accepting or rejecting uh, Christ. And then those that did believe uh, this election ascribed to them, as many has been, had been appointed in verse 48 Uh, had been appointed to eternal life uh, believed. And you notice election is, even in this passage, never applied to the unsaved, but to the elect, to the saved. But human responsibility for failing to receive everlasting life, that lies on on the head of the person uh, who rejects uh, Christ And the word of, God, of the Lord as a result of this then spread throughout all of the region. These Gentiles took uh, the fact that we can be forgiven and, and we can be justified in the eyes of God by trusting in uh, this Jesus. They took that message all throughout the region, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and uh, chief men of uh, the city probably devout and prominent women in the synagogue whose husbands had had prominent positions there. Uh, maybe the women too within the city. They raised up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them then out of their region. And Paul and Barnabas uh, they shook off the dust from their feet um, against them, and they then came to Iconium. So they did just as exactly as Jesus said. They reject you. Uh, then just r- brush off the dust of your feet when you leave them, and that isn't a, uh, it wasn't that isn't a, the action of the arrogant or the proud or the condescending. But it was a, an action that communicated to the people that had reject uh, rejected Jesus and rejected the, the message the seriousness of that uh, that decision. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So Paul leaves, Barnabas leaves. They're moving on to the next city. Persecution is driving them on that. And, um, but this uh, new church, these new believers, the Holy Spirit stays behind. And, and stays with people in a way that we can't. And uh, this beautiful work then uh, comes out of it in the joy, uh, in, in, filled with joy and with uh, the Holy Spirit. And so they, they move on. And I, I know I'm two minutes over right now and the, and, the, and the room is warm. But let me say one other thing. Is that when Paul and Barnabas, after dealing with um, uh Eli- Eli- Eliamus, and then now dealing with so much rejection even in this city, they're driven out of the city. The cause for joy in their, in their lives was that people got to hear the gospel and become Christians. And, and for anyone that's going to be a soul winner or hold the kind of positions that uh, in mission work, certainly, evangelism, certainly, Um, uh, being a leader in a church, certainly um, that has to be enough. There is so much rejection that occurs uh, compared so often to the fruit that it it becomes incumbent upon us to put our eyes on the good fruit that is coming out of what God has called us to do and not to focus on uh, all of these other things that would otherwise discourage us. And so I think for longevity in ministry and for, you know, uh, 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 certainly in terms of longevity, there has to be in the heart of a person. It, uh, it is, what my reward is, no matter what the persecution is, is that I am telling someone the good news about their salvation in the same way that somebody told me. And they have a right now to do with that what they decide to do. But everybody has that right. And I can live with that and and what happens between them and the Holy Spirit. But there's that passion that everybody hears and everybody has the opportunity to change uh, their lives. And so let's stand together now and uh, we'll close tonight. prayer. Father, thank you for really the incredible ministry education that is just in this chapter alone and the tremendous ministry encouragement that is found in this chapter. Thank you so much for being able to hear some of these things for the first time. To have these things reinforced into our lives and brought to our remembrance, bringing perspective to our service to You and our um, desire for the whole world to know You in the way that we do. And we thank You that we've been able to spend this time together, uh, this time in Your Word that we've been in, and in worship, to be able to do it together. Thank You for the body of Christ. Thank You for the local church. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Lucy, would you close us?